The new year arrives with no pause in fighting in Gaza. Despite news that Israel is pulling several brigades out of the Strip, it's the first significant drawdown of Israeli troops, and it's what the U.S. has been urging. Our story is coming up on this Monday, January 1st, 2024. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, predictions don't always pan out. For example, this time last year, many forecasters were predicting a recession in 2023. Instead, the economy has greatly improved. Why the economic soft landing? Coming up. And 10 years ago, Colorado became the first state to legalize marijuana for adult recreational use. It's sold nearly $12 billion since then, and recreational pot is legal in nearly a half state, half of all states. These stories and much more coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Israeli military says it will begin to withdraw thousands of troops from Gaza, but Israeli leaders vow the war will last many more months. NPR's Carrie Khan reports. Health officials in Gaza say at least 35 more Palestinians were killed in the previous 24 hours from Israeli airstrikes in central Gaza. That brings the death toll since the start of the war to more than 21,000, according to Gaza's health ministry. Israel's military spokesman warned that, quote, as 2024 begins, the objectives of the war require prolonged fighting and we are preparing accordingly, he said. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Israeli Supreme Court today struck down a law to overhaul the nation's judicial branch. The changes were promoted by the right-wing government and had sparked months of protests. The law would have prevented judges from overturning government decisions they deem unreasonable. The Ukrainian capital of Kyiv is observing a day of mourning today following Russia's large-scale aerial attack across the country on Friday. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney reports it was the deadliest day for civilians in the city since the war began, killing 28 people and wounding dozens more. Across the street from one of the damaged buildings in Kyiv, Elena Chernovska is looking up at the broken windows and wiping away tears. What kind of New Year's mood can be when you look at all sorts of things like that? It's a sentiment felt throughout the city, on a somber and subdued New Year's Day in Ukraine. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Kyiv. Early this morning, Russia launched a record 90 drones over Ukraine. In his New Year's address, President Volodymyr Zelensky said his country will boost weapons production this year, including building at least a million drones. Rescue efforts are underway in Japan, where a series of earthquakes struck today, collapsing buildings. President Biden issued a statement that the U.S. is prepared to provide any necessary assistance. Congress has a major legislative to-do list when it returns from its holiday recess. Lawmakers are negotiating immigration reform and aid to Israel and Ukraine. NPR's Eric McDaniel has more on the story. They got three crisis pieces of legislation passed in the first year of the 118th Congress. One kept the U.S. government from defaulting on its debt. The others were short-term spending bills. Instead of legislation, the year will probably be remembered for a few nearly unprecedented events. The 15 rounds of voting, it took Kevin McCarthy to become Speaker of the House, the first ouster of a Speaker, also McCarthy, by a vote of his colleagues, and the subsequent three weeks of chaos as Republicans struggled to reach consensus on a replacement. The House-Republican divides that drove that dysfunction could now derail the must-pass suite of federal spending bills. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News in Washington. 
Minimum wage workers in more than 20 states are getting a pay raise today. But as NPR's Andrea Shu reports, another 20 states will stay at the federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. How much you earn depends a lot on where you live. And an annual reminder of that is the start of the year when many states raise the minimum wage. Illinois, Nebraska, and Rhode Island are among the states raising the minimum wage by a dollar or more in 2024. Washington state will once again have the highest state minimum wage in the country, $16.28 an hour. That's only topped by the minimum wage in some cities and in the District of Columbia. At the other end are 20 states whose minimum wage matches the federal minimum wage, set at $7.25 an hour back in 2009. Some Democrats in Congress have proposed raising that to $17 an hour by 2028, but so far the measure has no Republican co-sponsors. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. In California, it's now illegal as of today to carry a concealed gun in many public places, such as parks, banks, and churches. The ban applies even to those people who have a concealed gun permit. The law is still being litigated, but a court is allowing the law to go into effect in the meantime. Illinois is the first state in the union to withhold money from public libraries that ban books. The Secretary of State said that it's ludicrous and dangerous for a couple of extremist groups to determine what books are in circulation for entire communities. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The sun is about to set on the first day of 24, and a pretty nice day it was. The clear, dry conditions should last for a couple more days. Tonight, starlit skies down around 24 degrees. Tomorrow should be much like today. Sunny, right about 40, and bright skies for Wednesday as well should be in the mid-40s. Could have some clouds move in, though, for Thursday. Both the Celtics and Bruins are off until tomorrow. 35 degrees in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel's military says it is removing thousands of soldiers from Gaza, so the first major drawdown of troops from Gaza in the war. And on the home front, Israel's right-wing government has suffered a blow. The Supreme Court has struck down a contentious law aimed at weakening the country's judiciary. Well, this New Year's news comes with no pause in the fighting in Gaza, as you are about to hear in this voice message. We received it today from Marianne Saba. She's 23 years old. She has been sheltering at a church in Gaza City for more than 80 days straight. It's really dangerous to go outside. We try not to leave at all. But me and my husband, we left once. It was yesterday. We went out because we were desperate to know what Okay. <laughs> More bombardment there. Marianne Saba is among the 85% of Gaza's population. That is nearly 2 million Palestinians who are now displaced inside Gaza. Well, let's bring in NPR's Daniel Estrin. He's on the line in Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Mary Louise. So intense fighting, as we just heard, um, quite dramatically there. And yet Israel is sending thousands of troops home. Why? Well, I spoke with an Israeli defense official about this, and he said Israel believes that it has achieved some military gains. Uh, Israel has achieved 
operational control of nearly all of northern Gaza, talking about thousands of Hamas fighters killed. There's fighting happening now in fewer areas of Gaza, focused mostly on Khan Yunus, which is Gaza's second largest city further south in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the U.S. had been calling on Israel to scale down the bombardment in Gaza. There is anger in the U.S. and worldwide about the death toll in Gaza, which is now close to 22,000 people, according to health officials there. But this war has also been hard on Israeli society, especially you hear this growing discontent in the public about where the war is headed. A very high number of soldiers killed and wounded every day and no decisive victory over Hamas. Just to be clear, this troop drawdown, does that mean in any way any indication that Israel is wrapping up the war? No, the the army has said very clearly these soldiers need to be back home with their families and back at their jobs because the economy is is lagging with so many people called up to war. But they have said that soldiers should be prepared for training and to to rest up and to be prepared for the war to continue through potentially all of 2024. And also for potential deployment, not only in Gaza, but on Israel's border with Lebanon. Uh, Even every day this past week, there's been cross-border fire with Hezbollah militants there. And, you know, Hezbollah is a much heavier armed group than Hamas is, a much more formidable enemy for for Israel. So there's potential of conflict expanding there and even elsewhere, as we've seen Houthi rebels fire toward Israel. While I've got you, Daniel, I want to quickly ask about that other news that I mentioned. Israel's Supreme Court striking down the law that was trying to change the balance of power in the country. How's that all playing out? Yeah, this was the landmark piece of legislation that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had advanced. It drew these massive protests, as you probably remember, for months against the law. Yeah, Security officials had even warned that Israel's enemies could see it as an opportunity to attack. And of course, Hamas did on October 7th. And now the court has struck down this law. And it's a victory for the Israeli movement, which saw that law as a blow to Israel's democracy. But now it opens this Pandora's box because Netanyahu's party has said that this ruling is against the will of the people. It reignites this really bitter fight at a very fragile moment when the government uh, is lagging in the approval ratings and trying to cling to power while it wages war. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Sounds like things are not slowing down for you in the new year. Thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. Today marks the 10th anniversary of Colorado becoming the first state to legally allow marijuana sales for recreational use. It's now a multi-billion dollar industry. Colorado Public Radio's Ben Marcus reports. New Year's Day 2014. Dozens of journalists crowded into a dispensary in Denver to witness the first sale. There were too many cameras for the small space, so the store owner had a plan. Okay, so we're going to run through the sale one more time for those of you that uh, could not get the pictures previously. So the first sale was actually done twice. I think there was like almost like a physical altercation between a couple of guys holding cameras. I won't name any names. That's Christian Cedarberg. He was part of the campaign to legalize cannabis. Across Denver, at Colorado Harvest Company, the line was long all day. Tim Cullen, the owner, said he heard some people grumbling and an older customer interrupted them. And he turns around and he says, hey man, I don't care if we wait three hours. I have been waiting for 62 years for this to happen. And here it is. Since that day, customers have purchased about $12 billion of legal marijuana in Colorado. The tax revenue from it has not solved budget woes, but it does fund things like construction of schools and rec centers. 
and marijuana possession arrests have dropped 71%. Before legalization, residents had to get paperwork from a doctor to buy cannabis for specific medical conditions. Colorado's then governor, and now U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper, didn't want recreational use legalized. But he's come around. I was worried about the, the downsides that were widely predicted by experts, that this would lead to a dramatic increase in, in experimentation and consumption and frequency uh, by young people. A federal government survey says youth marijuana use has declined here since legalization. Still, kids in Colorado use more than their peers across the U.S., and cannabis opponents remain worried about high-potency marijuana and candy flavors. But it's hard to imagine going back. Nationwide, recreational cannabis is now legal in 34 states, bringing in $15 billion in tax revenue over the last decade. Again, store owner Tim Cullen. You know, fast forward 10 years, and you have almost half the country with some form of recreational legalization. Almost the entire country has some form of medical CBD has swept the country as well. I mean, it's a vastly different landscape than where we were 10 years ago. And Colin says the sky did not fall, as some predicted. For NPR News, I'm Ben Marcus in Denver. President Biden remains unpopular even as his campaign prepares for the first Democratic primary next month. One group in particular driving up his high disapproval is Generation X. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis explores why the slacker generation has become one of the most conservative. Tara Shuttle's disapproval of President Biden could be traced back to her childhood. I have a distinct memory of when Carter was in office and we had to wait in line for gas. At 54, Shuttle is a member of Generation X, those born roughly between 1965 and 1980. And Dr. Gene Twangy says that alone could help explain the conservative tilt. Gen X is the most Republican of the generations. Twangy studies generational differences and is the author of the recent book, Generations. She says political attitudes start to be shaped really young. And for Gen Xers, their childhood is defined politically by an unpopular Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, and a popular Republican president, Ronald Reagan. Recent NPR PBS NewsHour Maris polling underscores this point. It shows Biden with the highest disapproval rating among Generation Xers when compared to the baby boomers, millennials and Gen Z. Even for Gen Xers who approve of Biden, like 56-year-old Latino Ken Piccolo, there's a nostalgia for their youth. You know, at the time, because I was in high school when Ronald Reagan was president. Piccolo, for now, supports Biden. His view of the Republican Party only started to shift in the Trump era. We're in San Francisco or San Jose, I can't remember. And I find it. And I feel good about being American. Economically, Gen Xers are facing a cascading series of concerns. Aging parents, raising children, approaching retirement, rising costs all hit acutely in middle age. Amy Walter is a nonpartisan political analyst with the Cook Political Report and herself a Gen Xer. You're feeling every squeeze of modern society at this age in your life. A sense of economic unease right now is true for Cheryl Graham. She's 55 and lives in the Clearwater area of Florida. We live paycheck to paycheck, thinking I'll probably have to sell my house to make money. She's voted for Democrats before, like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, but never intends to again. Trump's America first economic message resonates with Graham, who is white, as is about 60 percent of Generation X. Biden is more popular with non-white Gen Xers like Darnell Bender. He's a black Democrat living outside of Atlanta. 
He supports Biden and is skeptical about Republicans' economic message. And especially on the Republican side, it's like a, America has fallen into this dark, deep crevice and only this person can drag us out. And I'm like, uh, I don't see that. Twangy says cultural divides, especially over free speech and whether to police speech, are another factor which might explain why Gen Xers lean to the right. Sean Trendy, the senior elections analyst for Real Clear Politics and another Gen Xer, said he views his generation as having a more culturally libertarian worldview. They're not as socially conservative as boomers and not as culturally progressive as millennials and Gen Z, particularly when it comes to policing speech. We call it culture war, cancel culture, wokeness or whatever. Like, I think Generation X is the one that that really reverberates negatively with. Graham says she feels this tension in her own family when talking with her three kids. We'll say something that we think is totally not wrong. And they're like, well, you can't say that. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know what I'm saying? Unlike boomers or millennials, Generation X is rarely invoked as a key vote in the national political debate. Generation X is smaller in population than those counterparts and doesn't engage on the same level. Here's Twangy again. They just, you know, have not voted at the same rates as the boomers before them and the millennials after them. Political indifference is true for Danny Dotson, a 55-year-old independent from Texas. I have never involved myself in politics for majority of my life up until um, really, I guess, after Trump became president. He has voted sporadically in national elections, skipped out on 2016, and voted third party in 2020. As for 2024? I'm 100% certain I will not vote for either one of those people. Call it the, oh well, whatever, never mind, vote. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to All Things Considered. Thank you for joining us on New Year's Day here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, an eight-year-old girl went missing from her home in Georgia more than 25 years ago. Coming up, why her family is still looking for answers. That and much more still ahead. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Realtors in Greater Boston are feeling cautiously optimistic about the real estate market in the new year. The Greater Boston Association of Realtors says high prices and interest rates have challenged buyers and sellers, but there are still signs things may change. WBRS and Indoor and Omeka reports. With interest rates expected to come down further, some buyers may be more likely to jump into the market, and current homeowners may feel more comfortable putting their houses up for sale. Jared Wilk of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors says this should create more movement in the market. The market feels more, quote, normal than it has for quite a few years, where there were, you know, pretty rapid changes and pretty extreme changes in the marketplace. Wilk says the pandemic home buying frenzy has eased and more people are buying and selling homes due to family needs, a new job or other life events. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The forecast is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
Looks like January is starting on the gentle side weather-wise. Tonight staying clear, temperatures in the mid-20s, so cooler than it has been. Tomorrow and Wednesday should be sunny and dry again, not too chilly. Temperatures in the low to mid-40s. No showers in sight until maybe Thursday. 36 degrees in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 2023 truly was the year of girl culture. Themes of girlhood were everywhere, from the hugely popular Barbie movie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. To girl dinner. This is my meal. I call this girl dinner. Girl 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 dinner. To ballet flats and hyper-feminine styles, and of course, there was pink everywhere. Grown women all over were embracing the identity of girl. Isabel Cristo recently wrote about this phenomenon for The Cut, and she joins us now. Hi there. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So I have definitely noticed a lot of these trends. I mean, they're impossible to escape on TikTok and social media. But I want to ask you, when did you start to realize this was more than just a couple of fads and that embracing girlhood is really a cultural phenomenon right now? It feels omnipresent. I think it was in the summer, you know, we were in the thick of the summer of Barbie, the summer of the Eras tour, I think the new... Little Mermaid movie had had just come out. You couldn't really walk a block in downtown New York without running headlong into leg warmers and ballet flats and pleated schoolgirl skirts and like bows, so many bows. And yeah, I I think I quipped like, is there any culture for adult women anymore? Like, are they still making that? Let's get into why this trend has been so prominent. What do you think it is that attracts women to identifying with girlhood? Or as you put it in your piece for The Cut, what's so unappealing about being an adult woman? Yeah, you know, that question is a bit of a rhetorical one. I think anyone who has been plugged in at all this year knows exactly what's so uninviting about being an adult woman um, in the year 2023. I think that, you know, part of what the girlhood trend is, is sort of responding to a quite bleak political landscape. You know, we're in the direct aftermath of the Dobbs decision, and then we're also in the midst of a sort of larger conservative backlash. And I think that leaves us feeling sort of a bit unmoored and a bit untethered to a a identity of womanhood that is like rooted in joy and Uh, lightness and um, playfulness. I wonder from your perspective, how much of this is about selling things to women to make money and how much of it is about personal connection to a childhood sense of joy and wonder? I think those are really difficult to disentangle between the sort of individual, individuated experience of girlhood and the sort of mass marketing of girlhood and girlishness. There's also, you know, the internet. 
And one thing that I, you know, didn't really get into in the piece, but I think is worth mentioning is that like the language of the internet is irony. That's the sort of lingua franca. And so this really interesting tension arises when you have, for example, a political moment like Dobbs that really demands a kind of collective earnestness. You know, it demands being in the streets, it demands like political organizing, but of course the internet can't really metabolize that earnestness. And so I think that's why we see the rise of these like aesthetics and, and subcultures where you can sense that they have something to do with the political moment at hand, um, but it's not quite clear. It's a bit ambiguous or opaque, you know, what it is they actually want to be saying about that political moment. Isabel, if 2023 was indeed peak girl culture, do you think it's been a good thing? I think it is a good thing in the sense that I have a deep well of empathy for and also am interested in how my own girlhood, you know, prefigures my womanhood. And and I have the same uh, interest, you know, for women collectively to be thinking critically about that. The only thing I would say is we should be careful about the ways that that sort of self-infantilization or mass infantilization could play into some more uh, sinister agendas. I think, you know, one of the things I was noticing when I was watching all of these women online identify as girls or girlies is uh, the refrain wasn't, I'm a girl, it was, I'm just a girl, you know, this kind of like uh, position of of powerlessness. Um, And I think that that is totally fine and good and fun, you know, when you're just sort of like speaking to a very microscopic subcultural community on the internet. Uh, But I think we should always be thinking about how um, women in the context of like a feminist movement might be able to generate political power. Isabel Christo's piece, Woman in Retrograde, appears in The Cut. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Um, Have a happy new year. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Teresa Hernandez. In January 2020, Teresa was 33 weeks pregnant. One morning, she had a strange feeling about her baby, so she decided to go to the hospital, make sure everything was okay. When she got there, she and her husband learned that the baby's heart rate was dropping. Her doctor told her the baby needed to be delivered that day by C-section. And uh, when she said that, I was like in complete shock. I said like, but he's too little. And she said, yes, but if he's inside, I won't be able to help him if something goes wrong. So they rushed me to the OR and uh, I started thinking like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to have this C-section. And I started like having like a panic attack, having difficulty to breathe. And this nurse, she took my hand and I started squeezing her hand. And then she held me while they were doing the epidural. And she started like rubbing my back. And then I think she placed one hand on my cheek and she started like humming. And I felt like my mom was there holding me. 
when your mom is there, it doesn't matter how old you are, but if you're going through something difficult, when your mom is there, you feel protected. You feel like you can do it. Like you feel like everything is going to be right. And that's what I felt with her. There were a lot, a lot of unsung heroes that experienced, but she was the first one. And the one that has like, I have a really special memory and, I, and I, I'm really, really thankful for her, for what she did that day for me. That is Teresa Hernandez of Allen, Texas. Her baby Luca was born on January 8th, 2020. He spent five weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano, Texas. Teresa told us that Luca is now doing great. And you can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about six minutes. Why the U.S. economy fared much better in 2023 than analysts had predicted last January. This reminder for anybody using public transportation this afternoon. MBTA buses and subways are running on a Sunday schedule. Commuter rail is also on a weekend schedule, and there is no MBTA ferry service today. Starting Wednesday, there will be several 10-day closures on the Green Line. The B branch will be shut down between North Station and Babcock Street. There'll be no service on the E branch between North Station and Heath Street, and the C and D branches will be closed between North Station and Kenmore Square. Once again, that is starting Wednesday. 36 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com. I'm Robin Young. We'll take a look at what's in store for the global and U.S. economy in the year ahead. There's a lot of geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now. Add it all together and you just realize you're the metaphorical Alice and through the looking glass. She had to run to stay in place. Economist Diane Swank's hopes and worries next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Fighting in Gaza has killed about 20,000 people, most of them women and children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Israel says about 1,200 Israelis were killed at the start of the war. Now even more people are at risk of starving to death in Gaza. The UN says along with destroyed infrastructure, farming and fishing has come to a halt. A recent report by the IPC, made up of UN and other aid agencies, described the most severe food crisis of any country or region it has charted since it began 20 years ago. It said currently over 90% of the population was listed as in crisis. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. A powerful magnitude 7.5 earthquake has rocked Japan, triggering tsunami warnings along the country's west coast. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has more. 
The quake was centered on Ishikawa Prefecture on Japan's west coast, and pictures on social media appear to show damage to roads and buildings. Buildings shook in central Tokyo, and aftershocks rattled Ishikawa. Several bullet train lines were stopped. Nuclear power stations in several prefectures were checked, but no damage was found. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting. New measures to limit tourism and its impact on the local community take effect in Venice this summer. That's when the historic city will limit tour groups to 25 people, roughly half the number of passengers on a standard tour bus, and they will ban loudspeakers. The Italian city, known for its waterways and historic architecture, has long struggled to manage the million of tourists who visit the city each year, most only for a day. The city's already banned large cruise ships and requires day trippers to make a reservation and pay a fee. Wall Street is closed today in observance of New Year's. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This month, California will increase fines on tobacco retailers who sell banned products. LAist's Jackie Fortier has more. Chocolate, cotton candy, menthol, those are just some of the flavors of tobacco products that have been illegal for stores and vending machines to sell in the Golden State since 2022. The goal of the law was to ban sweet flavors that appeal to children and teens. Previously, the fine was $250 for each infraction. Now, violators could pay thousands. Retailers who are caught selling banned products could have their retail tobacco licenses suspended or revoked by the California Department of Public Health. The laws are aimed at sellers and do not punish anyone for purchasing, using, or possessing flavored tobacco products. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Minimum wage workers in New York have a lot to celebrate today. A New Year pay boost that's the first in a series of increases. In New York City and some of its suburbs, workers will get a dollar more an hour. That will raise their pay from $15 to $16. And in the rest of the state, the new minimum wage is $15. That's up from $14.20. New York is one of 22 states getting minimum wage increases in the New York In California, the minimum wage rose to $16. That's up from $15.50. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council has a new president. The vote came earlier today. I am Ruti Lijen, Boston City Councilor at Large. And now you're Boston City Council President. Lijen was chosen by her colleagues to replace Ed Flynn as council president. He held the post for two years. The 37-year-old Lijen is from Hyde Park and is starting her second term on the council. She is a lawyer and the daughter of Haitian immigrants. Longtime state representative Richard Volk has died. Volk represented Chelsea and Charlestown for 10 terms in the Massachusetts House in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. The Democrat was appointed majority leader in 1991. He died yesterday at the age of 76. In sports, both the Celts and Bruins are off until tomorrow. Professional Women's Hockey League kicked off its inaugural season today. New York beat Toronto 4 to nothing. The Boston Wicked played their first game Wednesday night against the Minnesota Superior. Puck drops at 7 o'clock at the Songus Center in Lowell. Again, that's Wednesday night. In the forecast, pretty nice New Year's Day today. Clear skies tonight on the cold side. Temperatures in the mid-20s. For tomorrow, sunshine once again, right about 40 degrees once again. 35 now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As a new year begins, the U.S. economy is in far better shape than many people expected 12 months ago. Inflation has come down. Growth has held up. Employers added more than 2.5 million jobs last year. And the stock market will open tomorrow in near-record territory. That is a welcome surprise given the widespread predictions last year that the U.S. would sink into a recession. We're going to look at how we dodged that bullet and what's ahead with NPR Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. In hindsight, 2023 turned out pretty well for the economy. What did forecasters get wrong? You know, a year ago, the Federal Reserve was pushing the brakes on the economy really hard in an effort to get inflation under control. Uh, The central bank raised interest rates very aggressively. And typically, when the Fed does that, it does wind up triggering a recession. Uh, In fact, when business economists were surveyed a year ago, most thought a recession was more likely than not in 2023. Of course, that didn't happen. And today, most business forecasters think we're likely to avoid a recession this coming year as well. Austin Goolsbee, who heads the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, spoke not long ago about just how unlikely this turnaround has been. It's not just a soft landing. This would be the mother of all the soft landings. There's never been a drop in inflation of the magnitude we need to accomplish and which we're part way on without there being a big recession. Now, as Goolsby notes, inflation is not yet totally tamed. Prices are still climbing faster than the Fed's 2% target. But inflation's come down a lot. And while higher interest rates have been a drag on some parts of the economy, especially the housing market, so far we have managed to avoid the kind of widespread economic turbulence that a lot of people were expecting. Why is that? How do we avoid it? You know, there are two ways to combat inflation. You can tamp down demand or you can boost supply. Higher interest rates are supposed to tamp down demand, and that is usually painful. But a lot of the inflation relief over the last year has actually come from increased supply, as some of those pandemic-era supply hiccups were finally ironed out. Now, that took longer than people had expected early on, but with more goods flowing, that helped to keep a lid on prices, especially for stuff like used cars and appliances. More people also came off the sidelines and rejoined the workforce last year, and immigration rebounded. And what's more, workers have become more productive, and that's good because when workers can produce more for every hour they work, employers can pay them more without putting upward pressure on prices. And does that necessarily mean smooth sailing for 2024? Not necessarily. You know, just as forecasters were overly pessimistic last year, we should probably be careful about putting on rose-colored glasses now. There is always a possibility that new storm clouds will take shape on the horizon. Getting inflation all the way down to 2% could prove more difficult than markets are currently betting. Austin Goolsby says he and his Fed colleagues are going to tread carefully. If we are able to pull this off and get inflation down without a recession, we will, it will be studied for years. And if we fail, it will also be studied for years. Okay, so we're going to aim not to fail. 
Some analysts think there's still more fallout to come from higher interest rates, especially now that a lot of people have spent the extra savings they piled up early in the pandemic, and as much of the financial aid the federal government offered during that time has run out. Those are the risks we know about. And of course, there could also be unexpected twists and turns, like another war or natural disaster or a sudden bank collapse. As Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said last year, economic forecasters are a humble lot with a lot to be humble about. That's NPR Scott Horsley. Thank you. A qualified Happy New Year to you, Ari. College football bowl games might grab a lot of the attention this New Year's Day, but today is also the start of something in the hockey world. Regular season begins for the new Professional Women's Hockey League. It's an upstart organization featuring some of the best hockey players in North America. There are six teams. They are all based in northern cities, three in Canada, three in the U.S. Now, these teams do not have logos. They don't even have names yet, but organizers say they wanted to get the league up and running as quickly as possible. Well, to get us up to speed as quickly as possible, we're joined by Sean McIndoe, senior hockey writer for The Athletic. Hey there. Hey, thanks for having me. Why a pro women's hockey league and why now? Well, this is something that various people in the sport have been trying to do for years now. The evolution of the women's game over the last let's say 20 or 30 years Uh uh, has been impressive at an international level and specifically with the United States versus Canada. This this was a rivalry that really started to take off at the Olympic level, world championships to the point where it's Canada versus the U.S. at elite best-on-best women's international hockey is one of the very best rivalries in the sport. Uh Now that has not carried over to a successful professional league. And there have been attempts just a few years ago that we had two leagues running at the same time. And I think even at the time, everyone sort of understood that that was one too many. Yeah. And the the previous attempts that you just nodded to, I gather among the problems was that players, at least some players, did not feel supported. Um, how are they feeling this time around? There's certainly a lot more optimism going in now. This is a situation where, from all accounts, the players are are having the sort of support that they're looking for, not just in terms of, of what they're being paid, but you know what kind of support does the team have? If you're going to run a professional sports league, you have to be professional. And that is uh, something that a lot of the players had demanded to the point where uh, some of them had refused to uh, to sign on with a new league until certain expectations were met. Those expectations have been met. And so we've got the situation now where really for the first time, there's no question about which league is which and, and which star players are going to be where. All the best of the best are in this one league now. And what about fans? If you're going to have a successful league, you have to have people come watch. Based on what you've seen in the preseason, are people going to go? So far, so good. The uh, The response has been quite strong. You've got the, the six markets, all of which are in uh, very good hockey markets, three in Canada, three in the U.S., and the early returns on ticket sales uh, have been very good. The debut game played today in Toronto was sold out relatively early. Here in Ottawa, where I'm at, finding tickets to some of the first few home games is is difficult. And huh. they're playing in, uh, for the most part, not NHL arenas, 
but we're, we're talking large arenas, several thousand seats, and uh, that the uh, movement for the tickets has been quite strong, and there seems to be a decent buzz around the games. Last thing, I saw you, uh, you just wrote a piece in The Athletic about how fans can pick a bandwagon team, so I have to ask, what's yours? Which team, which players you're keeping an eye out for? Well, I see, I mean, you're going to get me in a little bit of trouble here because I'm in Ottawa. <laughs> you're and totally they're, they're, neutral, have I know, team. however. <laughs> and yet, I mean, I also, I grew up in Toronto and I, I was a Maple Leafs fan. I've always been a Toronto sports fan. And I, I got to say, I'm sort of tilting back and forth between those those two Ontario-based markets. Toronto kind of has a little bit more of the the star power, well-known names in, in the women's game, like Sarah Nurse, and Natalie Spooner's on the team. But as I say, I haven't been able to get my hands on tickets for Ottawa yet. Maybe once I get out there, I'll uh, I'll be locked in, or maybe more likely the kids will get locked in, and then I'll have to go follow it along with them. <laughs> Sean McIndoe is senior hockey writer for The Athletic. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And now, an unsolved mystery. Shaikimia Pate was just eight years old when she went missing from her home in Georgia on September 4, 1998. She has never been seen or heard from again. As NPR's Jonathan Franklin reports, her family is still hoping for answers regarding her disappearance more than 25 years later. It's been over two decades since Veronica Pate last saw her daughter, Shaikimia Pate. But she says she hasn't given up hope on finding her. She's been missing 25 years. But I still feel that she's alive out there. On the day she disappeared, Shy Shy, as her friends and family called her, was playing outside at the front porch of her family's home in Unadillo, Georgia, a town roughly 45 miles outside of Macon. Her older sister left to fill her car with gas before the family went to a local high school football game later that night. But when her sister returned home, she realized that Shy Shy was gone. At first, the family believed Shy Shy had gone ahead to the football game with a friend. But as night started to fall, Veronica says the family's panic began to set in. We got kind of scared because that was something we had never been used to. In the months after Shy Shy vanished, police and family members went from door to door across Unadilla, looking for any signs of her. Law enforcement from neighboring counties assisted with the initial search, while residents in the neighborhood where Shy Shy grew up opened their doors and helped the family try and locate her. But sadly, nothing ever came of it. Shaikimia would have turned 34 on October 29th, and despite all the years that have passed, efforts to locate her are long from over. Somebody out there knows something. That's Randy Lambert, an investigator with the Dooley County Sheriff's Office, who has served as the lead investigator on this case since the very beginning. He tells me that his office, along with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, continues to comb through old and new leads, hoping to make a break in the case. He says he hopes Shy Shy will return home to her family safely. We have followed up on those, contacted these agencies to see what they've got. Randy says that over the years, his office continues to receive several leads from across the state and even places as far away as Detroit. But so far, the leads have come up with no promising results. I kind of feel it may be one person was involved in this. In 2022, more than 546,000 people were reported missing in the United States. That's according to data from the National Crime Information Center. And while Black women and girls make up 7% of the U.S. population, they unfortunately make up roughly 20% of all missing person cases. Until you have concrete information 
as to what happened to the missing individual, we cannot give up hope in finding them. That's Nally Wilson, the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing awareness to missing people of color. She says that time is critical in missing person cases, as the first 24 to 48 hours are the most important in the search. The longer one waits to file the initial police report, the more information in the search, such as forensics, can be lost. In Shashai's case, though, her friends and family quickly contacted authorities to begin the search for her that same day. And still, years later, investigators and national agencies continue to follow dozens of leads in the case, hoping that somebody will come forward with what happened to Shashai 25 years ago. Shashai's family deserve answers as to what happened to her. She disappeared over two decades ago. But we continue to hold on to hope that they will get the answer that they deserve. And we hope that it's to bring her home safely. After all these years, Veronica still hopes to reunite with her daughter, doing whatever it takes to bring her home. Even if she's fine and she don't want to come back here, I just want that stamp saying she located and I never gave up looking for her. And no matter how long it takes, I'm not going to stop searching for my daughter. Jonathan Franklin, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Israel has made the decision to withdraw some of its troops out of the Gaza Strip. What happens next coming up? In the forecast, looks like January starting off pretty delightfully. Tonight, staying clear. Temperatures in the mid-20s, so cooler than it has been. Tomorrow and Wednesday should be sunny and dry, not too chilly. Temperatures in the low to mid-40s. No showers in sight until maybe Thursday anyway. Tonight, the moon reaches its farthest distance from Earth in its orbit of the planet. The apogee, as it's called, puts the moon at 251,598 miles away from Earth, give or take. Our closest encounter with the sun happens Wednesday night. This is WBUR, 36 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.49. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Celtics and Bruins are both off until tomorrow. Nationally, the college football playoffs get underway today. And the semifinal, top seed in Michigan takes on fourth seed Alabama at the Rolls Bowl in Pasadena. That starts in about 10 minutes. Tonight, number two, Washington and number three, Texas, clash at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. Kickoff is at just before 9 o'clock. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. I'm Robin Young. We'll take a look at what's in store for the global and U.S. economy in the year ahead. There's a lot of geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now. Add it all together and you just realize you're the metaphorical Alice and through the looking glass. She had to run to stay in place. Economist Diane Swank's hopes and worries next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Forty years ago, a massacre took place in Lebanon's Shatila camp when local militias allied with Israel killed hundreds of people. The UN called it an act of genocide. While much has changed in the camp since 1982, Palestinians still hold the memory. And with the war in Gaza, many are now convinced that Hamas will restore their homeland. NPR's Jane Araf takes us there. 
The narrow streets of the Shatilla refugee camp are crammed with market stalls and motorbikes. Nests of snarled electrical wires hang between hurriedly built concrete homes. The camp is now home to not just Palestinian refugees, but Syrians, Egyptians, Iraqis, Bangladeshis, and others, most with nowhere else to go. But the heart of this camp is Palestinian. The scars of this community go back to the 1948 war during Israel's creation, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fled or were forced out and weren't allowed back. And to 1982, with the massacre by Israeli-allied Lebanese forces, scars reopened for many with the war in Gaza. Down a tiny alleyway, Dr. Mohammed Khatib unlocks a door to the past. It's Museum of Memories. Memories Museum. It's completely dark. There are no windows and the electricity is out. Khatib, who's 76 years old, lights an antique kerosene lamp. This is the lamp of my grandmother. So we return back 100 years uh, back. Khatib worked in a United Nations hospital here for years. He was a few months old in 1948 when everyone in his village fled to Lebanon for what they thought would be a few weeks. 75 years later, Khatib says his family home in northern Israel still stands, taken over by a Jewish-Israeli family. He takes the lamp over to two wooden models, detailed down to the black-and-white checker pattern on the floor. These two houses were done by a man when he was 82 years old. He said, this is for one grandfather, and this is for the other grandfather. And he was remembering how it is the house built, is built. When your home is lost, everyday things become important pieces of heritage. A lot of this is things people would have used every day in their villages. Farm implements and kitchenware, Rolling pins, old wooden rolling pins. There are coffee pots. I'm looking at a coffee pot with a bird on top. And then, in a roughly made wooden and glass case, there's a rusty axe. And this is the axe was used in the 1982, in the massacre. They were cutting arms, uh, everything of the body. In 1982, Lebanese Christian militias allied with Israel entered Sabra and Shatila, shooting, slashing, and stabbing hundreds of civilians after Israeli forces sealed off the camp. An Israeli commission later found Israel indirectly responsible for the massacre. Israel had invaded Lebanon earlier that year in what it called retaliation for Palestine Liberation Organization attacks. A week after, Lebanon expelled the PLO, leaving the camps unprotected. The killing began. Khatib says once most Palestinians believed they could regain their homeland and live in peace with Israel, but Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows not to allow a Palestinian state. So what do you think when a Palestinian hear that? When, when the Palestinians see the massacres that are now happening in Gaza. He says there's renewed hope of a Palestinian state, but not through peace talks, through force. It's a sentiment we hear throughout the camp. While the massacre has faded into memory, the images now of children being killed in Israel's offensive in Gaza are relentless. Israel says it's aiming to destroy Hamas after the October 7th attack on Israel. 
Near a vegetable market in Chatilla, a simple granite monument rests in a field above a mass grave for massacre victims in 1982. Those who couldn't be identified or had no relatives to bury them. 1,500 people were believed to have been killed. The parents and younger sister of the monument's caretaker, Adnan Maqdad, were among them. Maqdad has just been watching news of the Gaza war on a battery-powered television in a tent. A truce is difficult now. It's not easy, but the war will continue until liberation. The liberation of Palestine, he says. At a shop selling small toys, the owner, Nahad Marouf, says she has to believe that the killing of so many children in Gaza will result in a Palestinian homeland. This is 100% our conviction. Praise be to God and soon. How? With determination, fighting, war, and faith. She says even people who didn't support the militant Palestinian group Israel is fighting do now. What's happening, everyone is now Hamas. They have the right to fight, to enter Israel, because for 17 years they have been besieged. This camp is not Hamas territory. On almost every street, there are banners of a rival faction in the PLO and images of the organization's late leader, Yasser Arafat, who in 1993 signed a peace plan with Israel. But that was a different climate. And since the war in Gaza, support for PLO rival Hamas has increased. Down the street, we talked to a former PLO fighter, now 67, who's wearing a black and white scarf, a keffiyeh around his neck. He won't give his name because he's afraid Israel could hunt him down. He says he witnessed the 1982 massacre and survived by hiding in the trees. But somehow, he says, seeing children killed in Gaza on television is worse. He too is convinced his homeland will be regained soon by force. How? I'll tell you how. With the determination of the youth and their faith in God. After 75 years of despair, People here believe the war in Gaza, no matter how bloody, could be a path home. Jane Araf, NPR News, Shatila Camp, Beirut, Lebanon. In a small town on the southeast edge of South Dakota, there is a museum full of musical treasures, the world's oldest cello, one of Elvis's guitars. The National Music Museum's conservator, Daryl Martin, says it is one of the best collections in the world. So it's the quality of the instruments over a wide range of instrument types. There's a 17th century harpsichord. There's a electric guitar from 20 years ago and everything pretty much in, in between. We'll take you on a trip to Vermilion, South Dakota through the collection at the National Music Museum. That is tomorrow here on All Things Considered on NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR. Sure was a nice start to the new year with clear skies coming in tonight. On the cold side, though, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow is second day of sunshine, right about 40 degrees again. A bonus sunny day on Wednesday. We could see some clouds eventually on Thursday. 35 degrees in Boston at 459. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Morning has dawned in Japan and the country has begun to assess the damage after a series of major earthquakes struck today, New Year's Day. The largest quake resulted in the collapse of buildings on the west coast of Japan's main island. It's not known just how many people were hurt or killed, but rescue efforts continue. It's January 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Maine's Secretary of State Democrat Shanna Bellows talks about her decision to disqualify Donald Trump from Maine's Republican presidential primary ballot. And Democrats are defending the narrow 51 to 49 majority in the U.S. Senate. It's going to be an uphill battle this year as Democrats want to maintain the majority. Voters are no longer looking for a vote as the Senate, but for the person. Instead, they're looking at it as a vote for who will control Congress. That story and much more coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israel's Supreme Court has struck down a contentious law aimed at weakening of the court's power of oversight over the government. The law was a cornerstone of Israel's right-wing government and sparked large protests leading up to the Hamas attack on Israel in October. More from NPR's Daniel Estrin from Tel Aviv. Israel's right-wing government faced months of protest as it tried to pass legislation stripping some powers of oversight from the Supreme Court. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets demonstrating, fearing Israel's democracy would be weakened. The government passed the law this summer, stripping the Supreme Court of one of its powers of oversight. Even as defense officials warned, Israel's regional enemies saw the divisive moment as an opportunity to mount an attack. Hamas indeed attacked October 7th, sparking the current Israel-Gaza war. Now the court has overturned the divisive law, a narrow one-vote majority. Netanyahu's party says the ruling is against the will of the people at a time of war. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. President Biden is not actively campaigning for re-election yet, but you can expect that to change soon. NPR's Tamara Keith explains Biden's campaign in 2024 will argue democracy is on the line. In addition to making the case that he needs to finish the job on policies like health care, child care and college affordability, Biden is likely to focus a lot of attention on former President Trump's authoritarian rhetoric, like promising to go after his political enemies and talking about being a dictator on day one. Biden has been refining his anti-Trump messaging in fundraisers. We've got something two generations get to say about it. We'll be able to say, 
We save democracy. That clip comes from a video posted online by an attendee at a Boston fundraiser. Professional cameras are not allowed. Tamara Keith, NPR News. As of today, the minimum wage in Seattle is nearly $20 an hour. That's the highest minimum wage of any major city in the U.S. David Hyde with member station KUOW has more. The new minimum wage of 1997 takes effect for workers at larger companies like Starbucks. Former labor leader David Rolfe drove the original push for a higher minimum wage in Seattle. The rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, and the majority of Americans no longer participate in the great American dream. The new Seattle minimum works out to over $40,000 a year. But according to Rolf, that's still not enough to meet the actual cost of living in Seattle, where the median rent is about $2,000 a month. For NPR News, I'm David Hyde in Seattle. Google is agreeing to settle a $5 billion privacy lawsuit centering on allegations that search engine company spied on people who used the incognito mode in its Chrome browser. Suit contends Google misled users into believing it would not track their Internet activities. This is NPR. Consulting firm McKinsey and companies agreeing to pay $78 million in a settlement with insurers and health care funds that its marketing work with Purdue Pharma helped fuel the nation's opioid crisis. The agreement was revealed late last week in documents filed in federal court in San Francisco. Under terms of the agreement, McKinsey would establish a fund to reimburse insurers, benefit plans, and others for their prescription opioid costs. The United States will have lost a third of the newspapers it had in 2005 by the end of 2024. Bureau's Ned Luby reports that's according to a report from the Medill School of Journalism. The report comes from Northwestern University's local news initiative. It says only about 6,000 newspapers remain in the United States. That's down from nearly 9,000 in 2005. On average, it says two newspapers went out of business every week over the past few years. The report also says that the hedge funds that snapped up hundreds of newspapers in recent decades have been dumping them and creating news deserts across the United States. Hundreds of U.S. counties now lack a local news outlet. But the study says a nonpartisan group of philanthropists plans to commit $500 million to support local news over the next five years. Neto Ulibi. NPR News. Legendary comic and Las Vegas stalwart Checky Green has died. Green held court in some of the biggest casino showrooms on the Vegas Strip from the 1950s to the 1980s. He was beloved by fellow entertainers. Chicago-born comic also was a frequent guest and sometime co-host on TV talk shows. Checky Green was 97 years old. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Lovely weather for New Year's Day today, and the clear, dry conditions should last a couple more days. Tonight, starlit skies, a waning moon, temperatures down around 24 degrees. Tomorrow should be much like today, sunny and dry, right about 40. And then bright skies for Wednesday, too. Temperatures in the mid-40s could have some clouds, maybe a few showers moving in for Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 36 degrees in Boston at 506. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Scott Detrow. Former President Donald Trump's representatives say that we'll soon file an appeal so that he can stay on Maine's 2024 Republican primary ballot. 
Last week, Maine became the second state to rule the former president is ineligible to run because of what he did in the days leading up to and on January 6, 2021. Follows a similar decision by Colorado State Supreme Court, and both states' rulings cite Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, which states in part that individuals who, quote, engage in insurrection or rebellion should be disqualified from holding office. The amendment was ratified in the wake of the Civil War. Maine Secretary of State is a Democrat, Shanna Bellows. She made the decision to disqualify Trump, and she's with us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So how did you define engaging in insurrection here? Well, let's back up for your listeners first and make sure that everyone understands that Maine law is, to my knowledge, different from every other state. Mm-hmm. Under Maine law, uh, when I qualified Mr. Trump for the ballot, any registered voter had the right to challenge that qualification. Five voters did so, including two former Republican state senators. And then I was required under the statute, under the law, to hold a hearing and issue a decision and do so within a very mm-hmm. compressed timeline. So this that, wasn't something I initiated, but is something that's required under Maine election law. Sure. So the question came to you, but it puts you in the position of, of weighing a really serious question with big consequences that's in front of a lot of state courts right now. And that is this question of whether the attempt to overturn the election and what happened on January 6th was insurrection. How did you think about that key question? So I reviewed very carefully uh, the hearing proceedings and the weight of the evidence presented to me at the hearing. And that evidence made clear uh, first, that those events of January 6, 2021, and, and we all witnessed them, they were mm-hmm. unprecedented, they were tragic, but they were an attack not only upon the Capitol and government officials, but also an attack on the rule of law, on the peaceful transfer of power. Mm-hmm. And the evidence presented at the hearing demonstrated that they occurred at the behest of and with the knowledge and support of the outgoing president. And the United States Constitution does not tolerate an assault on the foundations of our government. And under Maine election law, I was required to act in response. And I understand, like, as you've pointed out, this is the way the system is set up. You are put in the position of making this ruling. But I do want to ask about some of the specific criticism that has come your way following this ruling, including uh, many others have said this, but Maine Congressman Jared Golden is somebody who uh, voted to impeach Trump for what he did on January 6th. He made it clear he doesn't want to see him in office again. But uh, he, he said, we are a nation of laws. Therefore, until Trump is actually found guilty of the crime of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot. What's your response to that line of criticism? So I encourage people to read my decision and also read very carefully Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say mm-hmm. convict. It doesn't say Uh, convicted or impeached. But furthermore, here's what's very, very important. In my decision, I made clear this is part of Maine's process. It now goes to Maine's Superior Court. Mr. Trump may and and will appeal to Superior Court. Then it goes to the Maine Supreme Judicial Court and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I voluntarily suspended the effect of my decision pending that court process because we are a nation governed by the Constitution and the rule of law. And that is extraordinarily important. So I can't agree more with Representative Golden that it's the rule of law that matters. And in Maine, under our election laws, the only recourse 
for the voters seeking to challenge Mr. Trump's qualifications was to bring that challenge to the Secretary of State, to me, and I was required to do my job to hold a hearing to review the evidence and issue a decision. And that begins, begins the process in our state. Do you think the U.S. Supreme Court needs to take this question up? We would certainly welcome the United States Supreme Court uh, to make this clear. And you mentioned that your ruling is on hold for the moment. Same applies to what the state Supreme Court did in Colorado. How quickly do you in Maine, as the person who oversees elections in Maine, how quickly do you need clarification from the U.S. Supreme Court in order to move forward for the primary? Under federal law, all our military and overseas voters, sometimes called Yokava voters, are eligible to receive their ballots 45 days prior to the presidential primary, which in Maine is on March 5th. So here in Maine, uh, those voters are eligible to receive their ballots uh, on January 20th. So the courts are compelled by a very compressed timeline as well here in our state, and I am hopeful we'll have resolution. We've got about 30 seconds left. I do want to ask your response to one other line of criticism from from uh, former President Trump's legal team and many Republicans saying this is just partisan, pointing out you're a Democrat, uh, arguing that this is just a partisan attempt to take him down in a moment when he's leading in many polls. What is your response to that? Because it's been a clear part of the narrative for several days. Politics and my personal views played no role. I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, and that is what I did. And I will tell you, my house was swatted on Friday night. And the, you know, I stand by doing my job, but mm-hmm. the response, the threats of violence and threatening communications have been unacceptable. Do you have extra security at this point in time? There have been other threats as well. Law enforcement has been incredible. They have been so supportive of me in this time. I feel safe and I will continue to do my job and, and mm-hmm. uphold my oath to, that I swore to the Constitution mm-hmm. because that comes first. That's Maine Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows. Thank you so much. Thank you. Many Americans took a double whammy to their pocketbooks last year. Prices for things like food and rent went up, and federal pandemic aid continued to peter out. But a string of states took a cue from one of those relief measures, the expanded federal child tax credit. It cut child poverty in half, then it expired. Now, NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that states are stepping in with their own child tax credits. Ashley Andrews says her family does okay in White River Junction, Vermont. She and her partner were lucky enough to buy a house before prices skyrocketed. Both work, but it's still not easy with two kids and the crippling cost of childcare. It's health insurance, it's vehicles breaking down, and um, you know, you're always just kind of one accident away from draining your savings account and being in debt. So it was a good surprise in April when they got their tax refund. It was like, wow, this was so much more than we were expecting. It included a new $1,000 Vermont state tax credit for their younger daughter. And it was just in time. Her partner got Lyme disease, which led to a slew of medical bills. Andries was laid off and her new job is only part time. She says $1,000 may not seem like much, but it can let them keep some extras for the kids they'd hate to go without. It is, you know, a year's worth of gymnastics, and it's like quality holiday or summer camps that the kids can go to. Vermont is one of 14 states that now have their own child tax credit, a number that's doubled in two years. Almost all are permanent, and in 2023, many states expanded who qualifies. 
Vermont included immigrants, even those without legal status, to help migrant workers in the state's dairy industry. Some states have pegged their child tax credit to inflation. Eleven offer the full credit to families with the lowest or even no income. Of all the states, Minnesota's credit is the largest, $1,750 for each child under 18. Minister Janae Bates helped push for that. She's with the nonprofit Isaiah, which advocates for racial justice. The unemployment rate has dropped drastically, which is a great thing. But we also are seeing that more and more families have two or three jobs um, where one job should be enough. She sees some families where both parents have multiple jobs. Minnesota's governor predicts the new tax credit will cut child poverty by a third. And Bates says inspiration absolutely came from the sweeping financial aid during the pandemic. That experience together allowed us for people to have a little bit more imagination about what it means to care for each other and recognizing that when we all pitch in, that we can all benefit. In 2022, Congress tried and failed to revive its expanded child tax credit. Kevin Corinth with the conservative American Enterprise Institute says one concern for Republicans is that with a permanent credit, some parents might stop working. While the state-specific child tax credits are smaller than what we've seen at the federal level, we still would likely see decreasing employment appearance, and that could offset some of the initial poverty decrease that we saw. But that's been less of an issue at the state level, says Adam Rubin of the left-leaning Economic Security Project, which supports bigger child tax credits. Most states who've passed them are led by Democrats, but... Even in blue states, we're often seeing tax credits passing with bipartisan support. That includes other ways to help low-income families, like expanding the earned income tax credit. Rubin says he heard this from one advocate in Maine. The Republican committee chair in the committee where they're having a hearing on their earned income tax credit expansion said, well, this is just a tax cut, right? And the advocate said... Yeah, it's a tax cut for working families. And the Republican guy goes, well, we're for tax cuts. Now that more states have passed these measures, there's a need to get the word out. Many families who qualify for the new child tax credits don't make enough to pay any taxes and may not be used to filing a tax return. The big push is to make sure they do so they can claim the new benefits in 2024. Jennifer Ladin, NPR News, Washington. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this New Year's Day. Residents of Kyiv, Ukraine, try to pick up the pieces of their lives once again following a weekend of missile attacks. Friday was the deadliest day for civilians since the war began in Kyiv. This is WBUR. That story is coming up in just about 15 minutes. If you've yet to dispose of your Christmas tree, curbside pickup for composting begins in Boston this week, but there are also other options to get rid of your tree. As WBR's Stevie Chapman explains, a lot of trees go to a good cause. Many local Boy Scout troops offer Christmas tree pickup and disposal. Troop 77 in Canton is doing pickups on January 6th. 
Troopmaster C.J. Turgeon says they are asking for donations in exchange for the service. This is our largest fundraiser of the year that we use to help facilitate our operating budget for the Scouts throughout the year. Michelle Olson with Goats to Go in Georgetown says her farm is accepting real trees again this year. Our goats love to play and nibble and eat the Christmas trees. They like the Douglas firs the best. No matter how you choose to dispose your tree, you'll need to make sure to first remove the decorations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. So far, so good for the weather this year. Should have clear skies tonight, but it should drop all the way to about 24 degrees. The sunshine is back tomorrow. Should be breezy and dry, up around 40 degrees for a high. Sunny again for Wednesday. Could rise to the mid-40s. It is 36 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 2024 has arrived. Now, maybe you have resolved that this year you'll join a gym, learn to knit, start composting. But what are the chances you will succeed at accomplishing the resolutions you're making today? Well, Marielle Segarra hosts NPR's Life Kit and spends a lot of time talking to experts about how to make life better. My co-host, Juana Summers, spoke with Marielle about why we make resolutions and how we can succeed. With them. What exactly is it about the start of a new year that pushes people in this direction? Culturally, we have these different markers of time that signal to us, hey, this is a chance to start over. And there's actually research on this from the field of behavioral economics that's often cited around New Year's. Google searches for the term diet, uh, as well as gym visits and also other commitments people make to pursue goals, those all increase following not just New Year's, but also holidays, birthdays, semesters in school, months, even weeks. Like, I don't know, maybe you've heard people say, oh, my diet starts on Monday, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, there's also pressure to make a fresh start around New Year's. And a lot of that comes from advertisers and from companies that are trying to sell us stuff like a gym membership or a new diet plan or containers for all your clutter, right? So I think we want to just make sure that we're choosing goals and resolutions that are right for us and not just getting sucked into this idea of, oh, I have to spend all this money to better my life this year. Right. Okay. So let's talk about what people are actually resolving to do. To absolutely no one's surprise, a Forbes Health One Poll survey found almost half the people who responded were making resolutions focused on improving fitness. What's one thing you would tell people with that goal? I think it's to consider movement rather than exercise. Like even even the shift in thinking about that word, movement, 
is more central here. The experts say we should be getting about 150 minutes of moderately intense activity every week to help protect us against things like type 2 diabetes and heart disease and cancer. That's about 22 minutes a day. And the reason that I say movement rather than exercise is when we say exercise, you might think, okay, I have to go do sprints or train for a marathon or sign up for a super intense spin class. But moderate intensity activity can actually be a lot of other things. Researchers at Arizona State University put out this list of different physical activities and how they'd be categorized. And moderately intense includes chores like walking around, picking up laundry, mopping the floor, mowing the lawn. Also hobbies like ballroom dancing, which is not that fast, you know, or bowling or things like walking down the stairs or walking the dog or just walking at two and a half miles an hour, which is not a crawl, but it's not a race walk. Marielle, in that same survey, 34% say they want to lose weight. And that's something that often gets lumped in with fitness. But the question I have is, should it? Partly that's because there's all this societal pressure to look a certain way and in general to be thin. But we also know from research that weight and body mass index are imperfect indicators of health. Um, And we know that strict diets and crash diets, which is what a lot of people do, especially after New Year's, they don't work long term. People just end up going back to what they were doing before. So experts have told us to really try to focus on healthy behaviors rather than weight loss, eating nutritious foods, drinking less alcohol or no alcohol. Those are things that we know are good for us and that feel good in our bodies too. Another thing that you can think about is mindful eating. Like slow down and think about what am I actually hungry for? Do I want something hot or cold or crunchy or soft or you know sweet or sour? And then while I'm eating, am I full? Okay, then I'll stop. And I find that that's just a more expansive and healthy way to think about eating than just being restrictive. All right, let's move on to another topic. And it's one I think about a lot. It's improving mental health. It's a really worthy goal for all of us, I think. But I don't know, the idea of trying to wrap up improving my mental health into a New Year's resolution. I don't know. It seems like that would actually cause me more stress. Is there a Mm -hmm. better approach to this? Yeah, it's big. But there are ways you can break that down and things that you can do every day or every week to improve your mental health. For instance, we've done episodes on making time for play and the importance of play in our mental health. We've done episodes on making sure you're connecting with friends because that combats loneliness or making time to be in nature. And if you are struggling with something like anxiety, for instance, there are things you can do in the moments that it comes up to bring yourself back to a more grounded place. For instance, if you really lean into your five senses, you might say, what do I see, smell, hear, feel, and taste right now? And then pull back and say, what was that about? After that, maybe you you seek help, you talk to a professional. Those are all different kinds of things that you could weave throughout your life in the new year to improve your mental health. All right. And finally, we come to financial health. The idea of 
having debt and getting out of debt is a situation that can be really difficult, both emotionally and financially. Yeah, I mean, debt brings a lot of shame. So if you're going to make a resolution around your debt, you want to start by not shaming yourself for having this money that you need to pay back. But then as far as actually tackling it, there are different things you can do. If you have medical debt, for instance, there are ways to negotiate that down or see if you qualify for what's called charity care. And we've done episodes on that that walk people through that step by step. And if you have other kinds of debt, you just want to prioritize paying off the debt with the highest interest rate first. That'll mean you'll pay the least over the long term. And so, for instance, if you have a payday loan or a credit card debt that you'll often have much higher interest rates on that that compound quickly. So pay those off and then get to your lowest interest debts second. One other thing that these polls have found is that very few people actually stick with the resolutions they make long term. I am one of those people. So really, is it worth it for us to even make these? You know, it's a good opportunity, I think, for a fresh start. But we also just want to check in with ourselves, right? Because we want to understand why we're choosing a particular goal. So ask yourself why. Five times even. That's a piece of advice that we've heard. I want to run a marathon this year. Why? So I can raise money for cancer research. Why? Because that's important to me. It's one of my values to give back. Okay, great. That's a goal that makes sense. I think this can be a helpful way to focus on like, are our goals actually in alignment with what we want? And are they nourishing us? And then you can also choose goals and map them out using the acronym SMART. I don't know if you've heard of this one. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. That stands for specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. So you want your goals to fit into that. And if a really big goal doesn't feel right for you this year, maybe you go with something more like an intention, right? I want to be more creative. And then you come up with a, a fun list of ways you could try that out this year. That's Marielle Segarra, host of NPR's Life Kit. Happy New Year. Yeah, you too. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. This reminder for anybody using public transportation this evening, MBTA buses and subways are running on a Sunday schedule. Commuter rail is also on a weekend schedule. Starting Wednesday, there will be several parts of the Green Line that will be closed for 10 days. The B branch will be shut down between North Station and Babcock Street. There will be no service on the E branch between North Station and Heath Street. And the C and D branches will be closed between North Station and Kenmore Square. In the forecast beautiful today and overnight tonight should be dry clear skies for tomorrow look for a day much like today sunny and dry right about 40 degrees and then bright skies for Wednesday as well could be in the mid 40s maybe some clouds moving in for Thursday 35 degrees now in Boston at 5:30. we're funded by you our listeners and by revision energy sunbug solar is now part of revision energy a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. A new proposed House bill aims to revive a controversial Department of Justice program, the China Initiative, which ended last year after criticism of racial profiling targeted ethnic Chinese academics and their links to China. I'm no longer the same. I can never go back to the same as I was before. What's behind the effort to revive the program on the next morning edition from NPR News? Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Israeli military says it will begin to withdraw thousands of troops from Gaza, but Israeli leaders vow the war will last many more months. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. The Israeli military says some troops and reservists from five brigades will leave Gaza and return home to Israel this week. Israel's ground invasion of Gaza has lasted two months now. Military spokesman Daniel Hagari gave an address. He said releasing reservists will help the economy after months that reservists have been away from their jobs during the war. Some soldiers are also returning to school. Israeli universities are back in session this week. The academic year had been deferred because of the war. But many soldiers will be returning to Israel for more training. The U.S. has called on Israel to transition to lower-intensity combat with more pinpointed raids on targets in Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. In an end-of-the-year report, Chief Justice John Roberts says AI will be one of the big issues facing the federal judiciary in the coming years. But he didn't mention other concerns, including ethics questions and legal fights surrounding Donald Trump. NPR's Brian Mann reports. The Supreme Court had a rocky year as journalists revealed that justices received financial support and luxury trips and also benefited from book deals, raising questions about the high court's ethical guidelines. The justices face another complicated year in 2024. They're expected to rule on legal questions surrounding Donald Trump and his alleged role attempting to subvert the 2020 election. But in his year-end report, Chief Justice Roberts doesn't talk about any of that, focusing instead on future challenges posed by artificial intelligence. Courts will need to consider its proper uses in litigation, Roberts writes, adding, quote, I predict that judicial work will be significantly affected by AI. Brian Mann, NPR News. Wall Street was closed today in observance of the New Year's Day holiday. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. A court in Bangladesh has sentenced the country's only Nobel laureate, Mohammed Yuas, to six months in jail. He says he didn't commit any crime. This comes days before national elections, with the country's prime minister seeking a fourth term in office. NPR's Dia Hadid has more from Mumbai. Mohammed Yunus, who is 83, is credited with helping to curb the poverty of countless people through a banking method that provides low-interest loans to the poor. It has since been replicated globally. He and three colleagues were accused of violating labour laws in a trial that Amnesty International described as happening with, quote, unusual speed. Reuters reports the court has granted them one month's bail pending a possible appeal. Amnesty says Yunus's conviction spotlights threats to human rights in Bangladesh, where authorities have, quote, eroded freedoms and bulldozed critics into submission. Analysts say Yunus has had the ire of the country's prime minister, Sheikh Hasina, for briefly setting up a rival party. D. Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. Japanese authorities are easing up on tsunami warnings after a powerful magnitude 7.5 earthquake hit the Noto Peninsula in the western part of the country today, triggering evacuation orders and also trapping people beneath the rubble. Officials say aftershocks are possible. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston's at-large city councilor Ruth Z. Louisienne has been elected the president of the Boston City Council. The 37-year-old from Hyde Park is a lawyer and daughter of Haitian immigrants. 
Counselors chose her today to replace Ed Flynn, who has led the body for the past two years. The city council today also welcomed four new members, Ben Weber, Enrique Pepin, John Fitzgerald, and Henry Santana. A woman who is a Boston fashion icon and an advocate for the city's black communities has died. Doris Yaffe was a promotion manager at Saks Fifth Avenue. The Boston Globe reports that four decades ago, she put together a fashion show there that involved the city's black and white socialite communities in a way that hadn't been done before. She was also an advocate for those living with HIV. Doris Yaffe was 94 years old. In the forecast, pretty nice night ahead. Should still be clear and still dry. Temperatures all the way down to about 24 degrees, though. Sunshine is back tomorrow. Breezy and dry again, right about 40 for high. Sunny again on Wednesday could rise to the mid-40s. 35 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today, the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, is observing a day of mourning following Russia's large-scale aerial attack across the country on Friday. It was the deadliest day for civilians in the city since the war began, killing 28 people, wounding dozens more. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny is in Kiev and sent us this report. At a commercial warehouse in Kyiv, one of the places hit in Friday's big attack, the ceiling is completely blown off. Inside, I can see there's fire damage and glass and debris all around. Across the country, rescue workers spent the weekend searching for bodies amid the debris left by the missile and drone attack, the largest since the war began in February of 2022. In Kyiv, more bodies were found in the rubble since yesterday. Elena Chernovska is across the street from one of the sites that was hit, looking up at the damaged buildings and wiping away tears. What kind of New Year's mood can be when you look at all sorts of things like that? It's a sentiment felt throughout the city on a somber and subdued New Year's Day. At Lisova Cemetery, Polina Sobolova is taking yellow roses and some sweets to the grave of her husband, Alexander, who died last February on the anniversary of the war. It's my first New Year's without him, she tells producer Katerina Malafieva, and it's important to be here today with him now. She says it's hard to walk past these graves and think, how many more will end up here? In other parts of the city, families are trying to find normalcy, some happiness where they can. At a winter market across the city, there are stands selling popcorn, waffles, and hot mulled wine. And there's a skating rink with twinkle lights strung up above. Mia, who is six, and her older sister, Diana, 
I'm nine years old. We're among the skaters. Last year we couldn't even stand on ice. Uh, one year we was on roller skate and now we uh, could stand. It's very uh, great that we can really just stand. Diana tells me she's been looking forward to this market for a while. We're drinking Coca-Cola, eating um, this chocolate and uh, corn. Sounds like a pretty good day. Yes. Uh, today was it was great. That's the girl's father, Dima. You, you can notice sit uh, in the ground floor somewhere and uh, just close inside yourself. You need somehow to keep on moving. Parents here tell us that with kids who don't fully understand what's happening to their country, this is especially important. Andre Forsa is here with his son Platon. It was the four-year-old's first time on skates. He fell and got up without tears. We're trying to enjoy the moment while there's still a possibility to do so, he says. We've had hard times, he says. We just wanted some joy between the air raid sirens. But their fun is short-lived. They've just received an alert on their phones. Drones have been spotted above the region to the north possibly heading for Kyiv. <laughs> Let's go, his wife Hanna says. <laughs> it's time to rush home. Elisa Nadworny, NPR News, Kyiv. Democrats face an uphill fight in next year's elections to, in this year's elections, Happy New Year, to maintain their narrow majority in the U.S. Senate. The races test the polarization in red states and the extent to which abortion rights resonate with voters. NPR's Susan Davis has this preview. In order to win re-election, Montana Democrat John Tester needs to defy recent history. Montanans pride themselves in splitting tickets, but you have to give them a reason to do that. Americans are finding fewer reasons to do just that. In the previous two presidential elections, just one state, Maine, split tickets electing a Democratic president and a Republican senator. Tester and Ohio Democrat Sherrod Brown are the two Democrats running in states where the Republican nominee, likely former President Trump, will likely win big again. If either senator loses, it could cost the Democratic majority. That's why Republican campaign operatives like Stephen Law, who runs the Senate Leadership Fund's Super PAC, are bullish about a takeover. It will be hard for any of these senators in those states, these Democrats, to cobble together enough swing voters to put them over the top as long as we've got a credible candidate and we run an effective campaign. Credible candidates and effective campaigns have eluded Senate Republicans in their quest for the majority in recent elections, costing the party seats they were favored to win in states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. And that's partly why Michigan Senator Gary Peters, who's running the Democrats' campaign operation, says his party has a shot to hold their majority. Normally the most extreme candidate gets out of a Republican uh, primary. After the primary, they're also uh, damaged in many ways and uh, their flaws are quite apparent to the voters. And when given that contrast, uh, we win. But there are few bright spots for Democrats. Joe Manchin's decision to retire means West Virginia is all but certain to flip to Republicans. Democrats could maintain control of their seven competitive seats and still lose control of a 50-50 Senate if President Biden loses. The vice president breaks the tie in a split Senate. Jessica Taylor, an election analyst with the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, put it this way. Democrats have to pitch a perfect game. There is no room for error. 
Meanwhile, Republicans are almost entirely on offense. Democrats will make runs at defeating incumbents like Ted Cruz in Texas and Rick Scott in Florida, but they are, for now, long-shot bids. That means Law, a close ally of Mitch McConnell, will be able to spend most of the super PAC's projected $275 million war chest attacking Democrats rather than protecting Republicans. With relatively little risk, it just means that the cycle is almost entirely upside. The red state Democrats aren't without advantages. Tester and Brown are established, well-funded, and remain pretty popular back home. A recent morning consult poll had Tester with an eye-popping 61% approval rating. But being likable and getting reelected aren't the same thing, says Taylor. Voters are no longer looking at a vote for Senate as a vote for the person. They're looking at it as a vote for who they want to control Congress. Brown says his record as a progressive populist with his support for unions and worker rights still resonates in Ohio. He rejects the conventional wisdom that Democrats in states like his need to move to the middle to win. Voters don't think in those terms. Pundits do, and maybe some reporters do, and maybe some of my colleagues do. But to me, it's whose side are you on? With Biden's sagging popularity and a sour national mood on the economy, Democrats want to make the whose side are you on question central to all of their campaigns when it comes to abortion. Here's Tester again. It shouldn't be the United States Senate telling a woman how to make their health care decisions. This is a little thing called freedom that Montana's value in a big, big way. All of the Republicans running in the Ohio primary support a national abortion ban, which, if enacted, could supersede Ohio's recent referendum protecting abortion access. Ohioans won't stand for, we voted for this, and these politicians who want to go off to Washington are going to repeal it. Law concedes Republican candidates have to do better articulating their views on abortion or risk alienating swing voters. They're going to have to spend campaign money to talk about it. They're going to have to deflect attacks and explain where they are. Senate primary elections to determine those candidates begin in March. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. And you are listening to All Things Considered. A powerful earthquake has struck Japan's west coast, killing at least four people and triggering tsunami warnings. This was the moment that the earthquake hit a shrine complex in the region. The ground started swaying. People screamed in fear, and then the shrine columns collapsed and shattered. The earthquake has erased New Year's festivities. Japan's government is telling people to remain vigilant about possible further quakes. NPR's Anthony Kuhn joins us from Seoul. Hey there, Anthony. Hi, Mary Louise. So that moment we just heard when the quake hit, tell me more about about what happened in that moment. Well, this was just after 4 p.m. local time. Uh, It was in Ishikawa Prefecture on Japan's west coast. And as you could hear, a 7.6 magnitude quake shakes things pretty hard. People were crouching on floors. They were running out of buildings. They were covering their heads. Uh, Tsunami warnings were issued for pretty much the length of the west coast on Japan's main islands. The quake was also felt in Tokyo, and there were even tsunami warnings as far away as North and South Korea, as well as cities in Russia's far east. And what about damage? What do we know? Well, it got dark just after the quake. The sun has just come up now in Japan, and the extent of the damage will become clear. But we know that some buildings... Uh, on the Noto Peninsula of Ishikawa Prefecture collapsed, injuring or burying some people. 
Many homes lost water and electricity. Uh, some cell phone networks went down. At least one big fire was started. Uh, also, streets and roads buckled. There was some flooding and landslides. Flights were canceled, and several bullet train lines were stopped. There are several nuclear power plants in the area. Those were checked, but they didn't find any damage. Uh, luckily, the tsunamis were quite a bit smaller than the estimated 16-foot-high waves people told people were told would be coming. Yeah. Now we were we're also saying the government has told people be vigilant. This may there may be more coming. What else is the government doing to respond? Uh, they have uh, taken in tens of thousands of people at evacuation centers. They have mobilized the military to provide relief and rescue. Three prefectures near the epicenter have applied a disaster relief law, which uh, ensures that they will get the help they need. Uh, Japan's chief government spokesman, uh, Yoshimasa Hayashi, described government efforts this way. Let's hear him. He says, we will do our best to implement emergency disaster measures, giving top priority to saving lives and rescue operations. He added that we ask Japan's people to continue to be vigilant about further possible magnitude 7 earthquakes. And in the U.S., President Joe Biden said that the U.S. is ready to assist Japan if needed. Anthony, as, as you know well, Japan has a lot of earthquakes. Do we know how this latest one compares to what they've experienced in the past? Certainly not as, the magnitude, not, not as bad as the magnitude 9 quake of 2011 that killed nearly 20,000 people. This quake did produce the first major tsunami warning since 2011. Last year marked a century since the Great Kanto earthquake of 1923 that killed nearly 150,000 people. Japanese cities are better built than then, but one often cited figure is that there is a 70% chance of a major quake hitting Tokyo in the next 30 years. So Japan is preparing for the next big one. That is NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting from Seoul on this latest development in Japan. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you're listening to All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Checking sports, both the Celtics and Bruins are off until tomorrow. Nationally, the college football playoffs are underway today. It's the first semifinal, top seed Michigan taking on fourth seed Alabama at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. That's underway right now. Tonight, number two, Washington and number three, Texas, clash at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. Kickoff is set for just before nine. The winners play for the national championship next Monday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. I'm Robin Young. We'll take a look at what's in store for the global and U.S. economy in the year ahead. There's a lot of geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now. Add it all together and you just realize you're the metaphorical Alice and through the looking glass. She had to run to stay in place. Economist Diane Swank's hopes and worries next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
Today, history is made in women's sports. The new professional women's ice hockey league officially launched with a Canadian team facing against New York. New York took the game forward to nothing. First game for Boston's team, the Boston Wicked, happens Wednesday against the Minnesota Superior. It'll be at the Songa Center in Lowell. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight, down around 25 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunshine's back. It's 549. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Starting today, the more than 65 million Americans who rely on Medicare will have better access to mental health coverage. Medicare now covers therapy appointments with licensed marriage and family counselors and licensed professional counselors. These are two types of therapists who make up around 40 percent of the master's level mental health providers in the country. That is according to the American Counseling Association. Here to help us understand how this new law could affect patients and providers is Victoria Kress. She's a professor at Youngstown State University and a licensed professional counselor. Victoria, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I mean, this seems like a bit of an obvious solution to me, I have to say. There is a big group of people out there who need access to mental health care, and by that I mean Medicare recipients. And there's another big group of providers who are able to do so. So why did it take so long, do you think, for this law to pass? Yes. Well, there have been many iterations of licensure and legislation that have been put forward and many different legislative techniques and strategies that have been applied to try to get us at the table and to get this passed. Um, I think it was really money. You know, I think, I think, you know, when I would sit with legislators, the first question they would, would ask is, you know, what, what is this costed out as? How is this going to impact us fiscally? Um, You know, obviously when you have easier access to care and more people providing services, that's going to increase the cost. So I think a lot of it was, in my experience, was really uh, just concerns about about the cost. You know, I think with uh, COVID, with the pandemic, it really put a spotlight on mental health needs. And many people started to realize how, how critically important access to care is around mental health issues. And because of that, I think legislators felt uh, an increasing pressure to provide access to care for those on Medicare, which which isn't just older adults. Right. You know, people often think older adults. It's, it's also there are, you know, 9 million people who have chronic disabilities who are under the age of 65 who receive Medicare services. So it's also going to increase their access to care as well. I mean, we should just be frank here. The need for mental health care in this country is incredibly stark. I mean, the Department of Health and Human Services estimates that 169 million Americans are living in an area with a mental health provider shortage. So, Victoria, how much of a dent could this change make in that what seems like massive need? Yeah, you know, it's profound. It's profound. Yes, about half of America lives in an area with a severe shortage of providers. And I can tell you as someone who works in an urban area, even in the urban areas, they're really walking the line and struggling to find enough providers to meet the demand for services. So 18% of Americans receive Medicare and they're going to overnight have access to so many more providers. So it's really, it's really exciting, particularly when you think about the rural areas 
uh, where one in three people receive Medicare services and there's such a severe shortage of providers. It's really going to be helpful to them. Um, and the advent of tele-mental health or providing counseling services via telehealth, that's also an exciting development that's occurred since the pandemic, which will help these people in rural areas who, who really struggle to get connected with mental health providers, get the care that they need. Something else that we also don't think a lot about is addictions. Many people in America struggle with addictions. Uh, many older adults and people with chronic disabilities struggle with addictions. Uh, about one third of all inpatient hospitalizations for opioid use disorder uh, are paid for by Medicare. And counselors are the primary provider of all addictions counseling services. So it's been so difficult for people to access addictions care. And now with counselors being able to provide the services that we're trained to provide, it's really going to open up opportunities for people to access addiction services as well. Victoria, Medicare reimbursement rates are significantly lower than what many therapists can charge out of pocket. I mean, a single session can cost hundreds of dollars for in-demand providers. Are you concerned that even though they're able to, counselors now might not want to accept Medicare because of the lower payment rates? Yeah, absolutely. And also with the legislative change, uh, counselors, marriage and family therapists will be being paid about 75% of what a psychologist would make. And so that that's also a deterrent there, right? The, the low pay rates. So no, that it, it's going to be an ongoing issue to try to get providers to sign up for Medicare reimbursement. But, you know, we also have a challenge in terms of continuing to encourage people to go into the mental health helping professions. And educators have a responsibility to continue to pull folks in and to train them to, to meet the demand that's out there. Uh, counseling is actually um, one of the most needed professions right now. There's a severe shortage all over the country. I, I want to acknowledge here before I ask this question that, of course, senior citizens are not the only Medicare recipients, though they do make up the vast majority of that population. And we know that their mental health care needs are complex and seniors have faced obstacles to receiving mental health care for years. To what degree do you think that Medicare coverage from professional counselors and family therapists could help bridge the gap for that specific population? Counselors are uniquely trained to meet the needs of older adults. As counselors, we receive training and counseling people across the lifespan, but we've not been able to work with older adults despite our training because of uh, difficulties with Medicare reimbursement. So this is really exciting. One of the things that makes counselors unique from other mental health professionals is that we have a focus on mental health. And what that means is we focus on people's strengths, their resources, and their capacities uh, within themselves, within their families, uh, within their communities, and within society. And we, we focus on those and we pull those into uh, our, our treatment plans and how we go about helping them make the changes that they want to make. So so I think our focus on development, um, our focus on mental health, our focus on being holistic, our focus on wellness is really unique to the older adult population. I think it really resonates with them. And I think that it 
our presence in this market is going to be really well received. Victoria Cress, she's a professor at Youngstown State University and a licensed professional counselor. Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The price of gasoline in Massachusetts continues to drop. The average price for regular is $3.20 a gallon. That's down three cents in the past week, and it's 18 cents lower than it was a month ago. The Boston area has the highest average gas prices in the state, other than on Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. Hampton County has the lowest prices in the state. Checking the forecast should be a clear, nice night tonight, dry and on the cool side, temperatures in the mid-20s. And for tomorrow, a second day of sunshine, right about 40 degrees once again. A bonus sunny day on Wednesday. Could see some clouds and maybe some showers on Thursday. 35 degrees now. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A seven and a half magnitude earthquake shakes Japan on this New Year's Day. Tsunami warnings were canceled, but waves of up to four feet struck along Japan's western coast. Our story is coming up. Today is Monday, the 1st of January, 2024. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Israel's right-wing government has suffered a blow as the Supreme Court strikes down a law that was intended to weaken the country's judicial branch. A decade ago, Colorado became the first state to legalize marijuana for adult recreational use. It has sold nearly $12 billion since then, and recreational pot is legal in nearly half of all states. Also, why members of Generation X are generally not big fans of President Biden or any politician on the left. These stories and much more still to come. It's 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. It was a somber first day of the new year in Ukraine. In the country's capital, Kiev, it was declared a day of mourning. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports the city cemeteries were full of families visiting loved ones killed in the ongoing war with Russia. New Year's in Ukraine is typically a holiday spent with family, full of tradition. For many in 2024, the second New Year since the war with Russia began, that means visiting with those who have lost their lives in the fighting. At Lesove Cemetery in Kyiv, 25-year-old Maxim brought gifts to the grave of his uncle Volodymyr, who was killed 18 months ago in the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region. We used to celebrate the New Year together, he says. Now I must celebrate without him. He says he's grateful to his uncle and so many others buried here in the fresh graves around him for sacrificing their lives so that he could be here, still in Ukraine, on this day. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Kyiv. At least four people are known dead following a magnitude 7.5 earthquake that hit an area of central Japan overnight. The quake destroyed buildings and knocked out power to tens of thousands of homes. The Templar also triggered a high-level tsunami alert, the first since 2011. The alert has been dropped, but coastal area residents are still being advised not to return to their homes, since officials say deadly waves still could come. The earthquake was the strongest to hit that area of Japan in more than 40 years. The U.S. has said it's ready to provide any assistance needed. In Louisiana, state lawmakers are facing a deadline at the end of the month to pass a new congressional election map. Zenpure's Hansi Luang explains it's the latest step in a long-running redistricting fight over the collective voting strength of the state's black voters. Louisiana's Republican-controlled legislature previously approved a congressional redistricting plan that a federal judge found was likely to dilute the collective power of the state's black voters. Louisiana's Republican governor-elect Jeff Landry has announced plans to call a special session after taking office on January 8th so state lawmakers can try to come up with a new map. Still, in court filings, Republican state officials have signaled they're interested in appealing this case with an unusual legal argument. The majority of this kind of voting rights lawsuit have been filed by private individuals and groups, like the black voters challenging Louisiana's congressional map. But these Republican officials are now questioning whether private individuals have the legal right to sue. Hansi Luang. NPR News. Some good news for minimum wage workers in nearly two dozen states, including New York. New York's minimum wage is going up, effective with the start of the new year, to $16 an hour in New York City and some of its suburbs and $15 an hour elsewhere. In California, the minimum wage is rising from $15.50 an hour to $16 an hour. U.S. financial markets are closed today for the New Year's holiday. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. The Israeli Supreme Court is striking down a key part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's controversial judicial overhaul measure, the move threatening to reopen divisions within the country that have been put aside while Israel focuses on the war in Gaza. In an 8-7 to seven decision, the court narrowly voting to overturn a law passed in July that prevents judges from challenging decisions they deem unreasonable. There was no immediate comment from Netanyahu. Venice will begin limiting the size of tour groups this summer and taking other measures to control tourism in the popular Italian city. As NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, city officials say they're trying to minimize the impact of tourism on the local community. Millions of people flock to Venice each year for its picturesque canals and ornate architecture, but the city has often struggled to accommodate the massive crowds. 
New rules taking effect in June will limit the size of tour groups to 25 people, roughly half the passengers on a tour bus. It will also ban loudspeakers that the city says may cause confusion and disturbances. It's not the first time Venice has imposed new restrictions on travelers. In recent years, the city has also announced plans to require day trippers to pay a fee to visit the city and instituted a ban on large cruise ships. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. 2023 was an up and down year for Hollywood with the actors' strike. However, with the strike now settled, the industry is closing out the year with some strong showings. Paul King's musical Wonka, starring Timothy Chalamet as young Willy Wonka, took in another $24 million over the holiday weekend. The color purple has grossed $50 million since opening a week ago. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. January is starting on the gentle side. Tonight should stay clear. Temperatures in the mid-20s, so a little bit chillier than it has been. Tomorrow and Wednesday, both should be sunny, dry, not too chilly. Temperatures in the low to mid-40s. No showers in sight until maybe Thursday. Lots of clouds around on Thursday. Today, the moon reaches its farthest distance from Earth in its orbit of the planet. The apogee, as it's called, puts the moon at 251,598 miles from Earth, give or take a few. Our closest encounter with the sun happens Wednesday night. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees at 607. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel's military says it is removing thousands of soldiers from Gaza, so the first major drawdown of troops from Gaza in the war. And on the home front, Israel's right-wing government has suffered a blow. The Supreme Court has struck down a contentious law aimed at weakening the country's judiciary. Well, this New Year's news comes with no pause in the fighting in Gaza, as you are about to hear in this voice message. We received it today from Marianne Saba. She's 23 years old. She has been sheltering at a church in Gaza City for more than 80 days straight. It's really dangerous to go outside. We try not to leave at all. But me and my husband, we left once. It was yesterday. We went out because we were desperate to know what... Okay. <laughs> More bombardment there. Well, Marianne Saba is among the 85% of Gaza's population. That is nearly 2 million Palestinians who are now displaced inside Gaza. The Israeli bombardment has made it impossible for them to leave. Let's turn now to NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So intense fighting, as we just heard, um, quite dramatically there. And yet Israel is sending thousands of troops home. Why? Well, I spoke with an Israeli defense official about this, and he said Israel believes that it has achieved some military gains. Uh, Israel has achieved operational control of nearly all of northern Gaza, talking about thousands of Hamas fighters killed. There is fighting happening now in fewer areas of Gaza focus mostly on Khan Yunus, which is Gaza's second largest city further south in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the U.S. had been calling on Israel to scale down the bombardment in Gaza. There is anger in the U.S. and worldwide about the death toll in Gaza, which is now close to 22,000 people, according to health officials there. But this war has also been hard 
on Israeli society, especially you hear this growing discontent in the public about where the war is headed. A very high number of soldiers killed and wounded every day and no decisive victory over Hamas. Just to be clear, this troop drawdown, does that mean in any way any indication that Israel is wrapping up the war? No, the the army has said very clearly these soldiers need to be back home with their families and back at their jobs because the economy is is lagging with so many people called up to war. But they have said that soldiers should be prepared for training and to to rest up and to be prepared for the war to continue through potentially all of 2024. And also for potential deployment, not only in Gaza, but on Israel's border with Lebanon. Uh, Even every day this past week, there's been cross-border fire with Hezbollah militants there. And, you know, Hezbollah is a much heavier armed group than Hamas is, a much more formidable enemy for for Israel. So there's potential of conflict expanding there and even elsewhere, as we've seen Houthi rebels fire toward Israel. While I've got you, Daniel, I want to quickly ask about that other news that I mentioned. Israel's Supreme Court striking down the law that was trying to change the balance of power in the country. How's that all playing out? Yeah, this was the landmark piece of legislation that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had advanced. It drew these massive protests, as you probably remember, for months against the law. Yeah, Security officials had even warned that Israel's enemies could see it as an opportunity to attack. And of course, Hamas did on October 7th. And now the court has struck down this law. And it's a victory for the Israeli movement, which saw that law as a blow to Israel's democracy. But now it opens this Pandora's box because Netanyahu's party has said that this ruling is against against the will of the people, it reignites this really bitter fight at a very fragile moment when the government uh, is lagging in the approval ratings and trying to cling to power while it wages war. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Sounds like things are not slowing down for you in the new year. Thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. Today marks the 10th anniversary of Colorado becoming the first state to legally allow marijuana sales for recreational use. It's now a multi-billion dollar industry. Colorado Public Radio's Ben Marcus reports. New Year's Day 2014. Dozens of journalists crowded into a dispensary in Denver to witness the first sale. There were too many cameras for the small space, so the store owner had a plan. Okay, so we're going to run through the sale one more time for those of you that uh, could not get the pictures previously. So the first sale was actually done twice. I think there was like almost like a physical altercation between a couple of guys holding cameras. I won't name any names. That's Christian Cedarberg. He was part of the campaign to legalize cannabis. Across Denver, at Colorado Harvest Company, the line was long all day. Tim Cullen, the owner, said he heard some people grumbling and an older customer interrupted them. And he turns around and he says, hey man, I don't care if we wait three hours, I have been waiting for 62 years for this to happen, and here it is. Since that day, customers have purchased about $12 billion of legal marijuana in Colorado. The tax revenue from it has not solved budget woes, but it does fund things like construction of schools and rec centers. And marijuana possession arrests have dropped 71%. Before legalization, residents had to get paperwork from a doctor to buy cannabis for specific medical conditions. Colorado's then-governor, and now U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper, didn't want recreational use legalized. But he's come around. I was worried about the the downsides that were widely predicted by experts, that this would lead to a dramatic increase in in experimentation and consumption and frequency uh, by young people. 
A federal government survey says youth marijuana use has declined here since legalization. Still, kids in Colorado use more than their peers across the U.S., and cannabis opponents remain worried about high-potency marijuana and candy flavors. But it's hard to imagine going back. Nationwide, recreational cannabis is now legal in 34 states, bringing in $15 billion in tax revenue over the last decade. Again, store owner Tim Cullen. You know, fast forward 10 years and you have almost half the country with some form of recreational legalization. Almost the entire country has some form of medical CBD has swept the country as well. I mean, it's a vastly different landscape than where we were 10 years ago. And Colin says the sky did not fall, as some predicted. For NPR News, I'm Ben Marcus in Denver. President Biden remains unpopular even as his campaign prepares for the first Democratic primary next month. One group in particular driving up his high disapproval is Generation X. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis explores why the slacker generation has become one of the most conservative. Tara Shuttle's disapproval of President Biden could be traced back to her childhood. I have a distinct memory of when Carter was in office and we had to wait in line for gas. At 54, Shuttle is a member of Generation X, those born roughly between 1965 and 1980. And Dr. Jean Twangy says that alone could help explain the conservative tilt. Gen X is the most Republican of the generations. Twangy studies generational differences and is the author of the recent book, Generations. She says political attitudes start to be shaped really young. And for Gen Xers, their childhood is defined politically by an unpopular Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, and a popular Republican president, Ronald Reagan. Recent NPR PBS NewsHour Maris polling underscores this point. It shows Biden with the highest disapproval rating among Generation Xers when compared to the baby boomers, millennials, and Gen Z. Even for Gen Xers who approve of Biden, like 56-year-old Latino Ken Piccolo, there's a nostalgia for their youth. You know, at the time, because I was in high school when Ronald Reagan was president. Piccolo, for now, supports Biden. His view of the Republican Party only started to shift in the Trump era. We're in San Francisco or San Jose, I can't remember. And I like it. And I feel good about being American. Economically, Gen Xers are facing a cascading series of concerns. Aging parents, raising children, approaching retirement, rising costs all hit acutely in middle age. Amy Walter is a nonpartisan political analyst with the Cook Political Report and herself a Gen Xer. You're feeling every squeeze of modern society at this age in your life. A sense of economic unease right now is true for Cheryl Graham. She's 55 and lives in the Clearwater area of Florida. We live paycheck to paycheck, thinking I'll probably have to sell my house to make money. She's voted for Democrats before, like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, but never intends to again. Trump's America first economic message resonates with Graham, who is white, as is about 60 percent of Generation X. Biden is more popular with non-white Gen Xers like Darnell Bender. He's a black Democrat living outside of Atlanta. He supports Biden and is skeptical about Republicans' economic message. And especially on the Republican side, it's like a, America has fallen into this dark, deep crevice and only this person can drag us out. And I'm like, uh, I don't see that. Twangy says cultural divides, especially over free speech and whether to police speech, are another factor which might explain why Gen Xers lean to the right. Sean Trendy, the senior elections analyst for Real Clear Politics and another Gen Xer, 
said he views his generation as having a more culturally libertarian worldview. They're not as socially conservative as boomers and not as culturally progressive as millennials and Gen Z, particularly when it comes to policing speech. We call it culture war, cancel culture, wokeness or whatever. Like, I think Generation X is the one that that really reverberates negatively with. Graham says she feels this tension in her own family when talking with her three kids. We'll say something that we think is totally not wrong. They're like, well, you can't say that. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know what I'm saying? Unlike boomers or millennials, Generation X is rarely invoked as a key vote in the national political debate. Generation X is smaller in population than those counterparts and doesn't engage on the same level. Here's Twangy again. They just, you know, have not voted at the same rates as the boomers before them and the millennials after them. Political indifference is true for Danny Dotson, a 55-year-old independent from Texas. I have never involved myself in politics for majority of my life up until um, really, I guess, after Trump became president. He has voted sporadically in national elections, skipped out on 2016, and voted third party in 2020. As for 2024? I'm 100% certain I will not vote for either one of those people. Call it the, oh well, whatever, never mind, vote. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Business news comes up at 6.30 this evening. 22 states will kick off the new year with minimum wage hikes. But is the minimum wage enough for people to get by? That don't matter if they do like 38, 40 hours. They they don't make it more than 500 for every two weeks. A look at how far the minimum wage goes to help American workers survive. That's coming up on Marketplace. Again, it starts at 6.30. Realtors in Greater Boston are feeling cautiously optimistic about the real estate market in the new year. The Greater Boston Association of Realtors says high prices and interest rates have challenged buyers and sellers, but there are signs that may change. Here's WBUR's Anindra and Omeka. That story is going to be coming up. Checking the forecast overnight tonight. Look for clear skies. Temperature should be in the mid-20s, so colder than it has been. And then for tomorrow, look for sunshine again. Should be a lot like today, breezy and dry, about 40 degrees for a high. Sunny again on Wednesday could rise to the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees now in Boston. As we said, realtors in greater Boston are cautiously optimistic about the real estate market in the new year. WBR's Anindjur and Omeka reports. With interest rates expected to come down further, some buyers may be more likely to jump into the market, and current homeowners may feel more comfortable putting their houses up for sale. Jared Wilk of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors says this should create more movement in the market. The market feels more, quote, normal than it has for quite a few years, where there were, you know, pretty rapid changes and pretty extreme changes in the marketplace. Wilk says the pandemic home buying frenzy has eased and more people are buying and selling homes due to family needs, a new job or other life events. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 620. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. 
The Bruins and Celtics are both off until tomorrow. Nationally, the college football playoffs are underway. Right now, in the first semifinal in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, top seed in Michigan and fourth seed Alabama are tied 7-7 in the second quarter. Later on tonight, number two Washington and number three Texas clash at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. Kickoff is set for just before 9 o'clock. The winners of each game play for the national championship next Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR, again 35 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 2023 truly was the year of girl culture. Themes of girlhood were everywhere, from the hugely popular Barbie movie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. To girl dinner. This is my meal. I call this girl dinner. Girl 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 dinner. To ballet flats and hyper-feminine styles. And, of course, there was pink everywhere. Grown women all over were embracing the identity of girl. Isabel Cristo recently wrote about this phenomenon for The Cut, and she joins us now. Hi there. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So I have definitely noticed a lot of these trends. I mean, they're impossible to escape on TikTok and social media. But I want to ask you, when did you start to realize this was more than just a couple of fads and that embracing girlhood is really a cultural phenomenon right now? It feels omnipresent. I think it was in the summer, you know, we were in the thick of the summer of Barbie, the summer of the Eras tour, I think the new... Little Mermaid movie had had just come out. You couldn't really walk a block in downtown New York without running headlong into leg warmers and ballet flats and pleated schoolgirl skirts and like bows, so many bows. And yeah, I I think I quipped like, is there any culture for adult women anymore? Like, are they still making that? Let's get into why this trend has been so prominent. What do you think it is that attracts women to identifying with girlhood? Or as you put it in your piece for The Cut, what's so unappealing about being an adult woman? Yeah, you know, that question is a bit of a rhetorical one. I think anyone who has been plugged in at all this year knows exactly what's so uninviting about being an adult woman um, in the year 2023. I think that, you know, part of what the girlhood trend is, is sort of responding to a quite bleak political landscape. You know, we're in the direct aftermath of the Dobbs decision, and then we're also in the midst of a sort of larger conservative backlash. And I think that leaves us feeling sort of a bit unmoored and a bit untethered to a a identity of womanhood that is like rooted in joy and Uh, lightness and um, playfulness. I wonder from your perspective, how much of this is about selling things to women to make money and how much of it is about personal connection to a childhood sense of joy and wonder? I think those are really difficult to disentangle. 
between the sort of individual individuated experience of girlhood and the sort of mass marketing of girlhood and girlishness there's also you know the internet and one thing that i you know didn't really get into in the piece but i think is worth mentioning is that like the language of the internet is irony that's the sort of lingua franca and so this really interesting tension arises when you have for example a political moment like dobbs that really demands a kind of collective earnestness you know it demands being in the streets it demands like political organizing but of course the internet can't really metabolize that earnestness and so I think that's why we see the rise of these like aesthetics and, and subcultures where you can sense that they have something to do with the political moment at hand, um, but it's not quite clear. It's a bit ambiguous or opaque, you know, what it is they actually want to be saying about that political moment. Isabel, if 2023 was indeed peak girl culture, do you think it's been a good thing? I think it is a good thing in the sense that... I have a deep well of empathy for and also am interested in how my own girlhood, you know, prefigures my womanhood. And and I have the same uh, interest, you know, for women collectively to be thinking critically about that. The only thing I would say is we should be careful about the ways that that sort of self-infantilization or mass infantilization could play into some more uh, sinister agendas. I think, you know, one of the things I was noticing when I was watching all of these women online identify as girls or girlies is uh, the refrain wasn't, I'm a girl, it was, I'm just a girl, you know, this kind of like uh, position of, of powerlessness. Um, and I think that that is totally fine and good and fun, you know, when you're just sort of like speaking to a very microscopic subcultural community on the internet. Uh, but I think we should always be thinking about how um, women in the context of like a feminist movement might be able to generate political power. Isabel Christo's piece, Woman in Retrograde, appears in the cut. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Um, have a happy new year. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Teresa Hernandez. In January 2020, Teresa was 33 weeks pregnant. One morning, she had a strange feeling about her baby, so she decided to go to the hospital and make sure everything was okay. When she got there, she and her husband learned that the baby's heart rate was dropping. Her doctor told her the baby needed to be delivered that day by C-section. And uh, when she said that, I was like in complete shock. I said like, but he's too little. And she said, yes, but if he's inside, I won't be able to help him if something goes wrong. So they rushed me to the OR and uh, I started thinking like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to have this C-section. And I started like having like a panic attack, having difficulty to breathe. And this nurse, she took my hand and I started squeezing her hand. And then she held me while they were doing the epidural. And she started like rubbing my back. And then I think she placed one hand on my cheek and she started like humming. 
And I felt like my mom was there holding me. When your mom is there, it doesn't matter how old you are, but if you're going through something difficult, when your mom is there, you feel protected. You feel like you can do it. Like you feel like everything is going to be right. And that's what I felt with her. There were a lot, a lot of unsung heroes that experienced, but she was the first one. And the one that has like, I have a really special memory and, I, and I, I'm really, really thankful for her, for what she did that day for me. That is Teresa Hernandez of Allen, Texas. Her baby, Luca, was born on January 8th, 2020. He spent five weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano, Texas. Teresa tells us Luca is now doing great. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-sized puppetry. January 23rd to 29th. ArtsEmerson.org.